is KPFK. 90.7 FM. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. You're listening to KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. The time now is 6 p.m. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. On the 4th of July, thousands of workers in Southern California hotels marched through downtown Los Angeles in what was their fourth day on strike, pushing for higher wages and better health retirement benefits. This is KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Good evening. I'm Angela Birdsong. Here are today's headlines. Starbucks employees are striking. Inglewood postpones action and public hearing to regulate street vending. Digital IDs and the danger of the surveillance state. Commentaries about the 4th of July and being American and the community calendar. All this and more coming up. Emily St. John reports in Two Urban Girls and the Los Angeles Wave that the Inglewood City Council is taking no action on establishing guidelines for the street vendors. Mayor James T. Butts Jr. closed a scheduled public hearing on the street vending ordinance and tabled the matter to an unknown date. The city had scheduled the public hearing to establish guidelines for street vending in accordance to state law, creating no vending buffer zone around entertainment venues and schools. The ordinance identifies Inglewood Cemetery, hospitals, places of worship, and swap meets being covered under the ordinance. St. John reports the department staff desires a 1,000-foot buffer zone but City Attorney Ken Campos reduced it to a 500-foot buffer zone. The proposed radius would not only benefit the Kia Forum as it would cover the entire property. However, for the SoFi Stadium, the 500-foot radius would not extend beyond the parking lot to the street. Jerry Tucker, Code Enforcement Manager, states, quote, with a 1,000-foot stadius, SoFi would take in portions of Pinkay and Prairie, and would still be on the border to the south and east as well. For the forum, it would have greater footprint into the residential community, going three blocks to the west, end of quote. However, Mayor Butts asked if the city would allow sidewalk vending in residential areas. Butts then made a motion to adopt the 1,000-foot radius. Councilman Eloy Morales wants to prevent the vendors from going into the residential area. Councilman Alex Padilla and Councilwoman Diane Dion Falk agrees with the 1,000-foot radius. Falk states vendor carts around the SoFi Stadium restrict movement of people attending events who end up walking in the streets to get around the carts. Councilwoman Gloria Gray also agreed with the 1,000-foot radius, but wanted to hear from the public since they will be most affected. Only one resident came forward during public comment, who prefers to keep the city clean and not looking like Manchester Boulevard and Western Avenue. Another resident who power walks around the Kia Forum several days during the week has never experienced walking in the streets due to the vendors, but has walked in the street on Pinkay and on Kareem Court when superfans are sleeping in tents on the sidewalks hoping to get concert tickets or early entry to selected areas in the Forum. 
Code Enforcement Manager Tucker said the hours for street vending, quote, in the ordinance residential zones would have operating hours of 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Mixed residential zone would be 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. and all others will be 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. Butts decided to table the discussion. The council voted unanimously to reschedule the public hearing to an unspecified date. Inwood residents who live near the Kia Forum and the SoFi Stadium and the upcoming Intuit Dome need to pay close attention to this matter. The United, Nation, the United Nations is planning an imp to implement a global digital ID system that is linked to individuals' bank accounts. They released a brief titled, A Global Digital Compact Reforms to the International Financial Architecture and the Future of Governance. Kim Iverson speaks to Mel Kay, whose successful blog discusses digital IDs and the danger of the surveillance state. In the brief, it reads, digital IDs linked with bank or mobile money accounts can improve the delivery of social protection coverage and serve to better reach eligible beneficiaries. Digital technologies may help to reduce leakage errors and costs in the design of social protection programs. So basically, they're trying to say, look, you want this because it means you're going to get your Social Security or your disability or your unemployment money faster. But what they don't tell you is they'll be able to monitor everything you buy. This is a long time coming. Uh, the American people have been really held in the dark uh, about this agenda for a very long time. They are kind of at their end game. People are being deceived as to what is going on and why, and then also told that it's for their own good and it's for convenience, when really, uh, it's, it's really the opposite of that. What is this digital ID gonna even look like? I mean, a lot of us have iPhones and we do have to hold up our iPhones you know, to our faces in order to unlock them, right? Or we, some of them, they used to do the thumbprint. What's the future looking like with these digital IDs? Well, if you look through this document, it's called Our Common Agenda. It, what people have been deceived a lot about is the connection between the World Economic Forum and their multinational global public-private partnership, which really makes a lot of this work. A lot of these companies that are involved on, in the tech side and on the back end of this are partners of the World Economic Forum. They had been working together for years, but in 2019, before COVID, the World Economic Forum and the UN put out a joint agreement that they were going to team up to fast forward the 2030 agenda, also known as the Sustainable Development Goals, which is what a lot of this is about. So in that document, it goes through iterations of this digital ID to the point where they are actually talking about surveillance under your skin, meaning that there would be microchips, which is happening in some countries, Sweden and other places are doing pilot programs. But essentially, it is a full track and trace surveillance system, not different than they already have in China, and uh, under the guise of sustainable development goals, it's about a um, digital compact, global digital compact and equity in the digital space worldwide. But at the end of the day, it's about a track and trace kind of ledgered surveillance system that would be behavior modification and have a, an aspect to it that is punitive. Yeah, they sell this like this is going to make your life better. I mean, that's how they sell it, right? Like, this will make life more convenient. I mean, imagine if you just had a microchip under your skin, you wouldn't have to remember which medications or which vaccines you've taken. You just show right. that, they scan it, and boom, it shows up, the chart for your doctor. And that way you don't have to be transferring records back and forth. So they sell it like this is a good thing for you. But let's talk about the real dangers of this. So let's say, okay, yeah, you've got this microchip that's going to say all of your medical records, including your vaccines. You've got a digital ID that's somehow connected to your banking account. So it makes it easy. You can just easily get your money from the government. You can easily spend your money, right? So everything just seems really, really convenient. But there's some serious downsides potentially to this. The American people really have to understand this because if we go into this, there is no coming back. And that yeah. is really, really important for people to understand. There's an, a billionaire oligarchy in America. They're pretty, you see who they are. We got the Larry Finks. He's very involved in this. He's also on the board of the World Economic Forum and involved in China and many other things. So he's one of the people. So this is attached to, of course, the central bank digital currency, executive order 14067. 
And that is also attached to, which many people didn't pay attention to, in the National Defense Authorization Act, Joe Biden and his group, I, I believe that they're more concerned with the globalist citizen group goals. They often bring up 2030 and they have a summit coming up in September where Joe Biden is expected to sign on to this new Our Common Agenda, which has this in it. But what they are really doing here, and it's been developed, it was ID 2020. It was the Gates Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, World Economic Forum, UN, and a bunch of partners of the private Western Central Banks. Your money wouldn't be your money anymore. It'll be programmable tokens. Instead of money, basically, it would be on a ledger system, which was in that National Defense Authorization Act, was the money to fund basically a blockchain to put every American citizen, every citizen of the world, honestly, onto a blockchain uh, system. And that would also include all of their other alliances. So they have an alliance with the World Health Organization. They have an alliance with the World Bank, with the IMF. They have an alliance with the IPCC. So this digital ID would not just include your vaccine status and your health records, but also there was an executive order about biometric data. So that would be on there as well. What you spend your money on would be on there. So there's the ESG score, digital track and trace of also your carbon usage. So they signed on in Glasgow, the Biden uh, group with Kerry and Gore to something called climate trace, which would be kind of your climate score. And then they also have another whole level of that, which is the World Health Organization just had their meeting. The Biden administration were actually pushing for these amendments that would allow the World Health Organization to call a pandemic. And that would also interact with our biometric track and trace controlled app. Basically, all of our rights and our, our rights by the Constitution Bill of Rights would be superseded by the emergency declaration. So at that point, you have to realize Everything that they're doing here is to consolidate power into this group of people. And as the people at the top, Klaus Schwab or Gutierrez or, you know, Tedros, when they explain it on stage and all these technocrats stand up and clap, they're clapping about something which really is about behavior modification, control and uh, surveillance and, you know, sustainable development goals. We hear a lot about that, but I would beg to ask people to look at them and maybe think sustainable, what does that mean? And sustainable for who? And then in order to have those goals, they need to be surveilling every human basically on the planet for consumption of everything of anything. That's also animals and, and natural resources. But then you go to the next level of that and it's, it's really not sustainable is not really the right word. It actually should be predictable, controllable, manageable. And then the next question is, by whom? And we all know that they want a one-party system, it appears. But I, I would say to both left and right, Republican and Democrat, are, that are picking some side, that that control that they want, that one party, would really be this globalist governance model. And, and I don't believe they're hiding it. And I believe that this is the way that they are going to implement that. They're not hiding it at all. They're putting it right out there. It's just like that whole, you will own nothing and you will be happy. I mean, it's so absurd. It really sounds made up until you see it on their website, on the World Economic Forum's website. You see it in their commercials straight out of their own mouths. They're putting it out there. They're not hiding it. They're saying, this is the future and you're going to like it. You're going to like not owning anything. <laughs> We're big brothering you to a level that is, I never thought that we would see this in our lifetimes. I really thought this was like a futuristic dystopian movie. And, and that's the scary part that they will be able to see every move you make, everything you spend, your carbon allowance, where you travel, what you do. And then there's a punitive side, like in China, they can turn off that money. We deserve to have privacy of how we spend our money, where we go, where we travel, what we do, how we raise our kids. Because the other side of this is a social credit score. And that is what um, Gutierrez also in our common agenda and this meeting that Biden is one of the hosts of in September. It's the summit of, our, of the futures. One of the big things is I verify and this they're said that UN and the World Economic Forum and all their partners and the NGOs, they put out that there's a information pollution and, you know, misinformation, disinformation, oh, all of that. Gosh. So there's an aspect to this, and they're working with Interpol to implement this, that for uh, wrong think, basically, or saying the wrong thing online or social media or any of that, it is worked into this digital ID system for punitive damages that you will, that will happen without you knowing. You'll wake up, and, and like it happens in China now, and you won't be able to get a subway ticket 
or you won't be able to buy gas. And the worst part about this is that these are all unelected officials. We don't even know really who's running it. I mean, we, we see the face of Klaus Schwab or something, but ultimately there's a lot of players behind this and they're not elected officials. And so then the question is, well, then why would we have to go along with it, right? It's about money. And the, the players who are controlling the money are the ones who are able to implement something like this. And because the world is so global, you've got these large corporations that are doing business all around the world. And they're going to be subject to, well, look, we don't want to do business with you unless you're going to implement this. And then they force their customers in the United States to also start using and following their rules. If you get the, the the people providing the goods and the services, if you get them on board, you don't even need the elected officials to agree to it because the people right, will well, have to do it in order to continue consuming those goods and services. Yeah, I mean, that's the model. I mean, I fully believe that we have a billionaire oligarchy that is controlling a lot of things in America that really don't that don't go through our constitution, our Bill of Rights. Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, obviously, he um, he had a meeting shortly before COVID uh, where he talked about going direct to the people. What he meant and, and what I believe fully is part of this whole plan is to subjugate our government and our elected officials, which then is even worse for us because they're really supposed to be representing we the people. And we're not even being consulted at this point on any of this. But what they're saying is they will use the corporations and the banks to control behavior and skip all the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, even the Congress and the Senate, and go right to us. I don't know why governments aren't standing up and saying, you can't do business with us if you're going to be doing these ESG scores. I mean, we've seen this throughout the pandemic when they were limiting, you know, cutting people off from PayPal. You can't even use monetary services because they don't like your ideas. They don't like what you stand for. And we have been captured by this global public-private partnership of the multinational corporations, and I call them the banking cartel. And frankly, uh, it does appear that our government is not necessarily working for us. So we really should also be looking at some of these big corporations that seem to own our nation and wonder how this happened and how to undo it. Here is Steve Zeltzer with a report on the Starbucks strike. My name's uh, Kyle Trainer. I'm a barista here, and I also helped organize the store. So we're just out here in support of other Starbucks stores um, across the nation. Uh, Starbucks has been not letting stores, either taking down their pride decorations, not letting them put them up, stuff like that. And Starbucks has always held themselves up as uh, you know, a, big, a big supporter of the LGBTQ community. And... Um, you know, they're showing less than otherwise as of late, and we're out here to hold them accountable. And, you know, we're also here just to let them know that uh, we're ready to bargain, we've been ready to bargain, and uh, they need to come to the table and bargain with us. It, it seems like they have a hard line now that you don't have a right to have a union. Is that their position? Yeah, uh, you know, Starbucks has uh, really shown themselves to be uh, vicious union busters. Um, organizers across the nation have been getting fired just for organizing, just trying to come together and, you know, make their workplace a better store. And that's legally their right to do that. And uh, Starbucks has um, decided they would like to, uh, you know, they don't want a union. It, uh, it affects their bottom line because, you know, we want, it's hard. It's hard to live right now. And, uh, you know, people need more money. We need more benefits. We need these things because it's just getting harder and harder. But, you know, Starbucks would rather put their, uh, their bottom line over people. So, you know, we're here to, again, we're out here to let them know that they can't be doing that and we're going to hold them accountable. I'm out here because I work at this store and I'm out here to support other stores and for our store. Um, it's important to me that we have the rights and we have a pay and also as a part of the community that we're represented also, especially being in the Castro and everything. With how much the Starbucks claims to be so progressive and all of these things, it's surprising how much they've been union busting against workers who are not fighting for that much, just a bare minimum, like, uh, like a livable wage, you know? I think one of the big ones is support to a lot of the um, LGBTQ workers who have been on the front lines of unionization and who have been like harshly retaliated against. How progressive can you be if you're forcing us to take down pride flags and pride decorations, you know? So. My name is Thaddeus. We're here to support the Starbucks yeah, workers in their fight for uh, their contract. 
that's pretty much it. No solidarity across the board. Like they have all this money that they could help us out, and they just don't care. They rather profit as much as they can while paying the workers the lowest wages they can. And they like to say that they're progressive, but you know, um, they just slashed all like LGBTQ decorations. Um, personally, I think a smart man said that to measure uh, progressiveness in society, it's how much free time we have, and you know, they're overworking us, they're underpaying us, and to me, that doesn't sound very progressive. You know, they like try to fire some people, not uh, personally in this store, although they did rip the benches out so people can't sit in here anymore. Uh, but like I know, like in Buffalo and other other places that they have retaliated against workers. How many workers are going out today? Um, that I don't know. I think there's a lot all, all around. All weekend there's been uh, like protesters and strikes all across the nation. I know Seattle had big ones yesterday. They actually brought Pinkertons out for the Seattle strikes, which is a little ridiculous. Yeah, a lot of us didn't even realize they still existed, right? Absolutely insane. Um, I work here at this Starbucks in Castro. And uh, yeah, I'm here striking in solidarity, you know, to kind of like, you know, bring attention to like, you know, the union and um, how Starbucks is like union busting on like a bunch of stores. They just like to, they just want to like just shut, shut unions down. Yeah, they're not, they're not coming to the table to bargain with us, even though we voted to unionize a year ago. And yeah, we still don't have a contract. It's been a year. Where's it at? Hear more from Steve Zeltzer on Working Voices on KPFK, Fridays at 10 a.m. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Please help keep independent journalism alive and KPFK Radio strong. Become a Sustainer Circle member of KPFK by pledging at any level. $10, $20, $100 per month, whatever suits you. This is Verdine White of Earth, Wind & Fire, encouraging you to make your tax-deductible donation today at 818-985-5735 or kpfk.org. Thanks for your support during our on-air drive that wrapped up on a high note June 30th. We so appreciate all of our listeners who stepped up to support the station by donating, renewing their membership, or becoming members for the first time. With your continued support, KPFK will persevere and serve the communities of Southern California and beyond for another 64 years and more. Thanks to our listeners and to the hard work of our small, dedicated paid staff and our large and diverse contingent of volunteer producers and programmers. We, we raised over $100,000 for KPFK to cover the cost of our operations, including bills we must pay to Southern California Edison for power to transmission tower to the transmission tower on Mount Wilson to LADWP and Southern California gas, water, power, and for the building. The phones, the internet, the website, and the rest. Now we are looking forward to celebrating our 64th birthday anniversary with you. Thanks again for making it all possible. If you didn't have a chance to donate, renew, or become a member during the on-air drive, you can still do so at kpfk.org or call 818-985-5735 and press 2 to donate. Here is today's international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere with Polina Vasiliev. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. According to the advisor to the general director of the Russian nuclear plant operations agency Rosenergo Atom, Ukraine is planning to strike the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant overnight on July 5th with a missile containing a nuclear dirty bomb warhead. RT Steve Sweeney has more details. 
Well, we've heard the report that uh, Ukrainian forces are allegedly planning to uh, launch a strike against the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant with a Tochka U missile armed with a dirty bomb, a nuclear, uh, a nuclear armed with nuclear uh, waste. Now, this comes after uh, both Russia and Ukraine have been trading barbs over the past few weeks, with each side accusing the other of launching or about to launch an imminent attack. Then on Tuesday morning, Ukraine uh, cut the main external power line to the nuclear power plant, causing it to rely on backup supplies. Now, this is a power line uh, that ensures uh, nuclear security and nuclear safety, causing the International Atomic Energy Agency chief, Rafael Grossi, uh, to raise concerns over the, uh, the precarious situation at the plants. Now, the plant has been under the control of Russian forces since March. It's Europe's largest, but it has come under frequent attack and frequent shelling from Ukrainian forces, prompting Russia, uh, the Russian ambassador to the United Nations, to send a note around the Security Council uh, just last week, calling on the General Secretary, Antonio Guterres, to force Kiev to stop its provocations. Now, in turn, Zelensky, uh, the Ukrainian president, fired back and he accused Russia of planning uh, an explosion explosion at the site and uh, he said that this could be carried out at some distance if the Ukrainian armed forces weren't allowed to get closer uh, to the uh, site. Now, the International Atomic Energy Agency replied by saying, well, actually, there is no evidence to suggest this. Now, let's remember that they have a team permanently based uh, at the nuclear power plant. They report every day and Grossi again replied and he said, I never argue with the president of Ukraine. I could only say that I was there and did not see it. Our teams are reporting there every day. Now, this was a response to Zelensky's claim that uh, Russia had taken in uh, 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 cars with explosives to the nuclear power plant and had also mined the area. So that has been denied by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Now, of course, these are very, very worrying times, and this could lead to the biggest nuclear catastrophe since Chernobyl in 1986. Dennis Kucinich, campaign manager to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., says the Ukraine conflict is not the first effort by the West to present Russia as a threat to the world. Kucinich spoke to host of Going Underground, Afshan Ratanzi. The congressional district that I represented uh, in the United States Congress for 16 years was multi-ethnic, and it contained uh, many Russians and many Ukrainians as well, and people, families together, marriages uh, between groups. And, you know, what's happened is a horrible effort to divide people for political purposes only. It started years ago with uh, the orange revolutions that were simply to try to uh, establish an area that put Russia forward as some kind of a threat to the rest of the world, totally based on, on power politics. And it continued with the broken promises of not advancing NATO power politics. Nothing to do with the interests of the United States of America, and frankly, nothing to do with the interests of, of the people of Europe. But now, after hundreds of thousands of uh, Ukrainians, uh, men and women have perished in a war that should have never been fought, the war continues. And it seems that the United States and NATO is pushing a war to be fought until the last Ukrainian. This is an abomination. President Biden announced Monday that he will nominate Elliot Abrams to the bipartisan United States Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. Abrams is a neoconservative hawk who led the Trump administration's failed Venezuela regime change effort, which involved crushing economic sanctions that are still in effect today. Abrams is notorious for his role in covering up atrocities committed by U.S.-backed forces in Latin America during the Reagan administration in the 1980s, most notably the El Mosote massacre in El Salvador. Over 800 civilians were killed by U.S.-trained forces in El Mosote, and at the time, Abrams praised the death squad and disputed the death toll. In 1991, Abrams pled guilty for lying to Congress about the Iran-Contra affair, but was pardoned by President George W. Bush. The U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy is tasked with appraising government activities to understand, inform, and influence foreign publics, as well as to increase the understanding of and support for such activities. The board's duties also include the assembly and dissemination of information and the issuing of reports to the Secretary of State, the President, and Congress. 
Senior editor of Issue Insight, John Kavulich, who knows Abrams personally, says he's not the best man for the job. You know, I'm concerned that Elliot's there. He's not the best representative of, uh, of good diplomacy. I've interacted with Elliot for a long, long time, including when he worked for Senator Moynihan, who I worked for, uh, and then interacted with him during the Trump administration when he was charged with dislodging Nicolas Maduro from Venezuela, which, you know, was an abject failure. He's a survivor. He did plead guilty. He was pardoned. You know, that in itself would seem to be disqualifying the pleading guilty part to being on an advisory board where you're supposed to to inform the secretary of state on best practices and how to make diplomacy more effective. There's no question that the um, the liberal base or Joe Biden's base will be apoplectic. That's going to be the message is why does this commission deserve this criminal who lied to Congress and now is in a position of advising the secretary of state on best practices for diplomacy? Israeli military aggression continued in the outskirts of Jenin, following the withdrawal of Israeli forces from the refugee camp in the occupied West Bank after killing at least 12 Palestinians during a two-day assault. Mona Kandil reports. After two days, Israeli forces began withdrawing from the refugee camp of Jenin, north of the occupied West Bank, after carrying out one of their large-scale military operations since 2002, where 12 Palestinians were killed and hundreds were wounded. However, clashes on the outskirts of the refugee camp were still taking place and Israeli forces were still stationed in many areas. About 3,000 people have so far left the camp after the Israeli regime threatened to destroy their homes. Jenin residents are now taking shelter in hospitals, schools and other places in the city. According to UN figures, some 15,000 Palestinians live in Jenin refugee camp. We expect that the confrontation will be wider and uh, because of the Israeli policy, because of the Israeli aggressive behavior and because of this fascist government whose ministers are declaring themselves as fascists and are saying that Palestinians have one of three options, either to immigrate or die or accept a life of subjugation to Israeli fascism. That's something that Palestinians will never accept and will never stop their struggle for their freedom. It says the raid will be underway as long as the exchange of fire continues. The military says it has identified 10 additional targets to destroy engineering refugee camp. It says the mission must be accomplished, that is targeting Palestinian fighters, arresting those described as wanted individuals, and capturing their ammunition. Palestinians say Israel is committing war crimes in the refugee camp in an effort to prevent future resistance and bringing down the Janine Brigades, the newly formed resistance group that's comprised of fighters from different Palestinian armed groups. The situation in Jenin and uh, the period of the uh, Israeli military aggression uh, depends on uh, what is going on the ground. Israel is seeking an achievement, military achievement, by maybe killing the biggest number of uh, fighters there. But this thing is not happening now. So the options of Israel are uh, getting narrow and narrow by time. If they fail to achieve this, it could be a failure for the total aggression in Jenin. Palestinians have staged a general strike across the occupied West Bank, including the city of Al-Quds, to protest the ongoing Israeli large-scale operation in Jenin. The strike has led to the suspension of all economic activities and closure of educational institutions across the occupied West Bank. Shops and private institutions in Palestinian areas also closed down. The Israeli regime might succeed in increasing the sense of satisfaction in its community after Jenin's military raid. However, it might not be aware that what they see as achievements will definitely lead to a fertile ground to raise another generation adherent to the resistance, not only in Jenin, but across the occupied West Bank. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Christine King Ferris, the last living sibling of civil rights leader, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., died last week, Thursday, June 29th, at the age of 95. In 1944, at the age of 16, Ferris entered Spelman College. Even before she graduated from the Spelman Nursery in 1931, 
Ferris's mother, grandmother, and great aunt had all matriculated at the institution. Ferris graduated from there in 1948 with a degree in economics on the same day as her brother, Martin Luther King Jr., earned his degree in sociology from Morehouse College. A decade later, Ferris returned to Spelman, where she worked and taught for more than 50 years. Ferris also held master's degrees in social foundations of education and special education from Columbia University. The Miami Times reported that for decades after her brother's assassination in 1968, Ferris worked along along with his widow, Coretta Scott King, to preserve and promote his legacy by helping her sister-in-law build the King Center and by teaching Martin Luther King Jr.'s philosophy of nonviolent resistance. She wrote two children's books about her life, and in 2009, she wrote a memoir. Ferris remained a member of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where her grandfather, father, and brother also preached. And her last pastor there at Ebenezer is Senator Raphael Warnock. Born as Willie Christine Christine King, September 11, 1927, in Atlanta, she was the first child of Reverend Martin Luther King Sr. and Alberta Christine Williams King. Ferris was not only a sister to the iconic Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but she was a trailblazer and an advocate for justice. A a three-day celebration is scheduled to honor Christine King Ferris in Atlanta, Georgia. The Apple weather forecast in North Hollywood at KPFK 90.7 FM shows low 80s for Saturday and Sunday. At our sister stations in Southern California, low 70s in San Diego, mid-70s in Santa Barbara, and 101 degrees Saturday and Sunday in Ridgecrest, China Lake. As we wrap up the founding of the United States, the question comes up, what is it to be American? Joan Kanjana Rivers has more. The box we are in as Americans is more than just one group of people. We are numerous groups of people with very different ideologies, different values, different political views, languages, and varying cultures. But what we have in common is that we all live together here in this nation. Paul Keevil in his book Uprooting Racism, speaks on how being American means giving up your culture. To become American, one must give up their culture and start speaking American English. This is true for all people, even European Americans. They stop speaking German, Turkish, Italian, or Spanish. The difference for Europeans is that they are then accepted and viewed as Americans. People have the option of being fully accepted if they look the part. What the powers that be, what a historically and systematically racist government wants, is for Americans to look like white Americans. When people of color choose to identify as American, we are challenged. Even when we're from here and we don't really identify with any other culture as much as we identify with the place where we're from, our nationality, people of color are denied the option of being American. We have not and often still are not viewed as Americans, even if we've been here for so many generations that we don't have any other country to identify with. Some of us have ancestors that were here long before the U.S. government existed. Our country has a history of telling people who or what they are, and historically, these colonizers would take a group of people and decide for them, you're African American, or you're Negro, or you're Native American, and Politically, our country has used this to deny people rights and access to different things. They were just making it up for their own benefit the whole time. So we are, in a way, buying into their beliefs by not identifying as what we are and believing what we're told instead of telling the world who we are. I understand not wanting to identify with all the treachery that the nation is still up to. However, I don't culturally identify with anyone else as closely as I do with other Americans. Black Americans and Latino Americans, mostly, those are my people, as well as other Americans of color 
and even many white Americans. Non-white people are understandably deterred from being part of the group. We have identity issues, and we look for cultures in our ancestral past to connect to. For black Americans, that is Africa. Now, I learned my history, African-American history, as well as African history, from my parents more so than I did in school. Our school systems are mandated to teach our history correctly. However, depending on your teacher, it's often not done. So our people lose interest. We opt out. We don't see ourselves in these narratives. We see our history being omitted. We clearly aren't welcome here, so we must not be Americans. So we try not to participate with anything Eurocentric. We try hard, and we fail. We want to decolonize our culture, and we can't have a conversation without using a European language. There are 54 different countries and over 2,000 languages on the continent of Africa. Most Americans speak none of them. We know Africa is where our ancestry is from, but those places and cultures have also evolved. Many have been colonized by different people or by the same Europeans that came here. When I leave the country and I speak in any other part of the world, as soon as people hear my accent, they say, Oh, you're American. And what I've realized is that when people see me, being a person clearly of African ancestry and an American accent, who they see is not the same as the definition that white Americans and the colonizers promote. I am seen as the other type of American, the ones that created jazz, blues, and hip-hop, the ones that are Olympic champions holding the black fist in Hitler's face. They see world-class athletes, basketball players, and they see powerful people being killed by the police, fighting for civil rights in their own country. A lot of countries teach their citizens global history, and I've met people in different parts of Africa that have more of an understanding of African-American history than some of the black Americans that I know at home. I was in South Africa listening to young black folks speaking facts about African-American history. They know who we are and what we deal with. Racial tension is high because when we disagree, we still have to share the same food, share the same water, the same air, because we live in such close proximity, we do influence each other. So culturally, even if our values are opposite, we still have things in common just based on region. Our children, long before they're politicized, they're watching all the people from their community. They take in how people walk, how people move and dress. Our cultures influence each other based on proximity. If the majority of the citizens of the United States of America today are not colonizers or people who want to embrace whiteness and white supremacy, then collectively we could change what the term means. Meanings change. America was named after an Italian. We speak a language from England. The largest population of Africa outside of the African continent is in the Americas, and the majority speak Spanish. Throughout the Americas, we speak English, Spanish, French, Portuguese, all languages of colonial powers of that time. But languages evolve. We don't speak English like the British. I was an adult when I found out Jamaicans speak English. Jamaican English, Patois, is a completely different language than the Queen's English. We have to redefine what it means to be American. And we can't define what being American means for us if we don't identify as being American at all. If 1% of this country is wealthy white conservative colonizers and they're the only people who identify and define what American is, then they have full say in what that means, while the rest of us are just confused trying to make up a culture that we can identify with, disregarding the fact that we already have one. African-American culture is unique and unlike any other African culture. The days of assimilation are over. We don't have to give up ourselves. We can have our ancient African cultural roots and our current American culture too. We don't want to identify with all the white Americans that participate in white superiority and world domination. We are not patriotic because we don't feel proud of war profiteering or disrupting peace in other countries. We are not proud of NATO if we are not proud of killing. The fact is, we are Americans. What makes us American is that we are from the United States. We may not be patriotic, 
but our ancestors built this country. This country was built on the backs of enslaved and exploited people whose descendants still live here. It was built with the contributions of our ancestors. We are Americans fighting for freedom within our borders, and we have a lot to be proud of. You said something that resonated with me. You said that you have to identify with what empowers you. And black Americans have not been empowered by the term American. I was not empowered by being called American. I don't feel empowered in this country when I when I hear the term American. I don't feel empowered. I don't even feel like like they're speaking about me. When I left this country and I'm perceived as an American was the first time that term felt empowering, but it came with a completely different context. When Africans hear me speak and they say, "Oh, you're American." It was a completely different experience for me. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. We've invented cars that drive themselves and 3D printers that build prosthetic arms and legs. We've successfully transplanted hearts and lungs. Now, it's time to end Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is on track to cost the nation nearly 1 trillion dollars by 2050. We can either be known for having the most expensive disease in history or for putting an end to it. Ask Congress to join the fight at alz.org/time-to-end-alz. This is the King Prince Shaheen from Legendary Infinity 4FCs giving a shout out to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles y'all out. Commentary on yesterday's celebration of the Fourth of July by Sylvester Rivers. July Fourth, a national holiday loved and celebrated by many. I, on the other hand, call this day a day of mourning, not a day of celebration. 1776 is the so-called day of American independence, but it was not for another 89 years before Black people were given their so-called independence. 1776 was independence for white males only. So why people of color celebrate this holiday is a mystery to me. Firecrackers and fireworks to mimic the War of 1812 that American settlers fought against the British. One observer of the battle was Francis Scott Key. He wrote the Star-Spangled Banner while witnessing some of the fighting and referenced the British bombs by saying they were bursting in air, bombs bursting in air. Part of that anthem says, "No refuge could save the harrowings and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave." Key is saying that any slave or worker should see his death or grave if they join sides with the British army. You see, the British had offered freedom for those enslaved people who would fight on their side, and yes, many did. 
The British were about to abolish slavery in 1812. And by 1776, the British had abolished slavery. Not for any moral reason, but because there were too many dark-skinned people on the islands that they occupied, and that those people were continuously revolting. And now, with captured Africans in the majority, it made it very dangerous for the minority white population. Abolishing slavery wouldn't work for the new American settlers, however, because they needed a source of free labor or enslaved people to help colonize the new frontier. The British abolishing slavery would be problematic to their quest to sustain their criminal settler colonial empire using enslaved Africans. Not only did the European settlers want to keep slavery intact, but they also wanted to participate in the Atlantic slave trade because the British monarchy had a monopoly on the ability to buy, sell, trade human cargo. So all this celebration, patriotism, and flag-worshipping is a part of the 4th of July celebration. Meanwhile, this American flag is the symbol for American independence, patriotism, and MAGA. But I'm wondering, how is the American flag different than that of the Nazi swastika? They both symbolize the notion of white supremacy. Like Hitler, the American founding fathers were white nationalists, committing genocide against a whole group of people. Not only did Washington, Jefferson, Adams, and all of those founding fathers try to exterminate all the indigenous people on the North American continent, they brutally captured, tortured, bought, sold many Africans from the continent and forced them to work. For all of these people, this July 4th commemorating 1776 is a day of mourning because the brutal enslavement of a whole group of people continued after 1776. Because the settlers did not want to end slavery, they needed labor to continue with their quest to colonize North America. Fast forward to 2016. NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick takes a knee to protest against the continued brutality of people of color. The brutality continues even after the 13th Amendment of the Constitution. The flag is a symbol of the policies and actions taken by the colonizers. The question, then, should not be why Kaepernick took a knee during the anthem, but why would anyone stand? As Frederick Douglass said back in the 1800s, what does the 4th of July mean to the black man? Today, in 2023, I say, what does the 4th of July mean to the black man? Or I could say, what does the 4th of July mean to the black man? Because, yes, you lied. This white supremacist nation talking about freedom? What does the 4th of July mean to me? So on this day, which was yesterday, we mourn, not celebrate. Why would I stand? I'd rather take a knee. For the KPFK Rebel Alliance News, I'm Sylvester Rivers. Hear more from Sylvester Rivers on KPFK Morning Mix, Cut to the Chase, Fridays at 8 a.m. What it is, KPFK? I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar. NAMI Urban Los Angeles Monthly Speaker Night, the first Thursday of the month, where participants will ask and answer mental health questions in an informal forum online through Zoom, Thursday, July 6, 7 p.m. To register, go to NAMIUrbanLA.org. Santa Monica Playhouse presents a Midsummer Night performance. Stogie Kenyatta's acclaimed one-man show, The World Is My Home, The Life of Paul Robeson. Saturday, July 15th, 7.30 p.m. at the Santa Monica Playhouse, 1211 4th Street, near Wilshire. For more information, call 310-394-9779 or go to santamonicaplayhouse.com. Join the People's Assembly every first Thursday of the month to come together and be part of the solution to repair the damage from the pandemic and housing insecurities. July 6, 6 to 7 p.m. at Community Coalition, 8101 Vermont Avenue in Los Angeles. Visit CocoSouthLA.org for more info. Check out Soul Sets at the Park Summer Concerts for lovers of R&B and soul with live performances at the Hollywood Park Casino in Inglewood. 
on Thursdays, July 13th, 27th, and August 10th from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. For more info, visit soul-sets.com. And that's S-E-T-S, soul-sets.com. Calling new shooters to reinforce your basic shooting concepts and intermediate shooters to test your fundamentals and push beyond basic applications with Stephanie for the next Shooter Cypher on Sunday, July 9th. Cypher days are reserved for shooters that have already taken the basics of pistol shooting with Stephanie and are not for inexperienced persons. For more information about Cypher days or to take the basics of pistol shooting course, Email shooterscypher at gmail.com. Meet Impu Kamut for weekly Kasa Taishi Shawan sessions on Zoom Tuesdays and Fridays at 8.30 a.m. Saturdays live in Lemur Park, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. For more information, call 213-447-7700. Africatown Enterprise presents the African Marketplace and Drum Circle, Sundays, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Crenshaw and 43rd Place for international foods, art, clothing, live music, and more. Volunteers of America, Los Angeles Drop-In Center for Youth, ages 16 to 24 years old, for clothing and laundry, shower, hygiene kits, meals, snacks, mental health services, housing referrals, employment assistance, peer groups, tap cards, and more, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., Saturdays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., contact 213 282-6618 282-6618 or go to 5344-Crenshaw Boulevard in Los Angeles. If you or a youth you know needs help to get away from an abusive situation that involves human trafficking, for immediate assistance from trained staff, look for the Safe Youth Zones signs outside of the L.A. County DPSS offices, the Department of Public Social Services. Just step inside for a safe place for help. If you suspect a child is being victimized, call 911 or the Los Angeles County Child Protection Hotline at 1-800-540-4000. That's 1-800-540-4000. The 39th anniversary of Bill Pickett Invitational Rodeo coming to Los Angeles with two shows only, Saturday, July 15th at 7 p.m., and Sunday, July 16th at 3.30 p.m. at the Industry Hills Expo Center in the City of Industry. Check out BillPickettRodeo.com for more details. Hollywood Park offers free fitness classes with Claudine Cooper on Saturday mornings at 8 to 9 a.m. Now until July 29th at the Court at Hollywood Park, adjacent to the SoFi Stadium. You can park in the PS2 lot at 1130 South Prairie Avenue in Inglewood. Find more details about Hollywood Park at HollywoodPark.com. HollywoodParkCA.com. HollywoodParkCA.com. And search for Hollywood Park Moves. For no-cost produce distributions taking place at clinics in Los Angeles, visit DHS.LACounty.gov. To find food pantries near you in the USA, go to foodfinder.us. To locate a Los Angeles Tennis Union meeting in your area, online or over the phone, visit latennisunion.org. For mental health resources, crisis support, helplines, and warm lines, go to namiurbanla.org under resources. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. You've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Thank you for keeping KPFK strong and independent source of music, art, news, and information. And thank you again for your donations, for becoming a sustaining member, for just supporting us, whichever way you were able to donate. And we just want to thank you for you know, if you know, just supporting us with KPFK Rebel Alliance News. And if you missed becoming a member by the June 30th deadline, don't despair. Become a member now and you'll be eligible to vote 
or run in next year's election. Go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online or call 818-985-5735 and follow the prompts to donate. Remember, KPFK is your key to peace, freedom, and knowledge. Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all Rebel Alliance News contributors. We hope you will join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. Coming up next is Feminist Magazine. to be thankful for. If you're thankful for the old family vehicle, you can let it help one more time by donating it to the KPFK Vehicle Donation Program. 